Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Jason Schumann, partner at Primary Venture Partners. And in this episode, we talk about a wide variety of topics, including how Primary Venture Partners is focusing its efforts today, what Jason did to get into VC in the first place, his experience sourcing deals, his time at Corrigin Ventures, which is now a pack of VC. We talk about the diligence process for evaluating a company, what sets Primary Venture Partners apart as a VC firm, the importance of having a highly skilled portfolio impact team, and much much more. As always, the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Jason Schumann, partner at Primary Venture Partners. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I appreciate, appreciate taking the time to come on. And for people who aren't familiar uh, with your venture firm, tell us a little bit more about what you guys are focused on. Yeah, so Primary Venture Partners, uh, we're the largest seed fund exclusively focused on New York City, trying to partner with uh, the best founders here at Pre-Seed and Seed and, and add value in unrivaled ways at the end of the day. And then for you, so what is your individual focus then at, at the venture firm? Yeah, so I joined uh, about two and a half years ago to lead our new consumer investments, so mainly consumer tech, fintech, digital healthcare, stuff like that marketplaces, and then prop tech as well. Nice. And so I want to take a step back. I love the context for us to start off with. But for you then, how did you get into venture? I know it's a number of years ago already. Oh, man. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's been about seven years now. Um, I started my career, honestly, when I was a kid, I was like obsessed with startups. And in middle school, was like writing business plans. And my mom would like shuttle me into the city to meet with founders and you know, high school, I got lucky enough to work in identity theft protection and under a former VC there at the time and started to learn more about it. But my career really started uh, when I launched a direct-to-consumer footwear company in undergrad. Uh, bootstrapped with my best friends, made every mistake in the book. I think it was uh, good timing back in 2011. I think the other small companies in the D2C space back then were like Warby Parker and Glossier <laughs> and... Uh, you know, somebody else executed a little bit better than me. Um, with that said, you know, ran that company for about a year in school and a year out. Uh, ultimately hit this 23-year-old life crisis where I was like, man, I don't want to do this for the next 10 years. So decided to wind the business down and then uh, looked in the mirror and decided, you know, venture seemed really interesting to me. It was like for four reasons. One, I could learn about different industries really quickly. Two, I could meet a great team to start another company with. Three, I could raise capital much, much easier. And then four, which is really like the biggest reason why I'm actually still in the game is because it just aligns with my mission in life. You know, like I'm all about empowering other people to live a more successful, you know, fulfilling life and, and helping provide them with the tools and skill set to do that. So in order to figure out a way to get into VC as a failed entrepreneur at 23 who went to the <laughs> University of Miami, uh, I literally started driving for Uber at night and during the day, like sourcing deals in Boston uh, for venture firms in New York and trying to give them, you know, feet on the ground there. And I was sending deals uh, for quite a while uh, to New York and finally got a job offer to, to move to the city and to work for Corrigin Ventures. So from that experience then, Jason, so you, you knew that you were sourcing deals already for other companies in that, like, how are you going about that process 
of sourcing? As you mentioned, you're driving for Uber, you're kind of hustling right at that time. Like, what were you doing to source deals at that time? Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky, you know, being a founder in Boston prior, I had a network of founders that happened to be either raising capital or knowing other founders who were raising capital. And yeah. you know, back in 2014, it's not like there was a lot of venture capital firms at the seed stage that led seed deals in Boston. It's just not the same that it is today. <laughs> So, you know, for somebody to, you know, walk into a room to meet someone, a founder that was just getting going on the fundraising process, oftentimes, you know, first time founders, not, you know, serial entrepreneurs that have raised venture right. before. And for this kid to walk in and be like, hey, I've got a big network of VCs in New York and I'd just love to learn about your company and help you get in touch with them. Uh, I think it was a pretty easy yes for a lot of them. And and, you know, on the on the flip side, it then added value to the people on the other side of the equation, the VC firms as well, which opened up doors and referrals lead to referrals, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's something where I look at doing the podcast the last number of years and meeting so many founders and VCs, that led the way to where I'm at now, another venture firm. But like for other people trying to break into VC, it's always a huge thing. If you can bring deals in, if you can have that deal flow, if you can know other VCs, you can know other founders such a leg up in terms of then your career and even just more fun anyways to, to more to know more founders and everything and it helps you as you want to whether you want to get into vc or have your own vc firm as well from that experience then so going from that to then being at corrigin at corrigin it's like what was your focus on in terms of investing when you're there for the, the four years or so yeah so i got brought in there you know as the, as the first hire below david goldberg and and i was on a 90-day trial and I think David was the only person there full time on the venture side at then. And it was like, okay, what, uh, what do you want to look at? What's interesting to you? Where does your you know, intellectual curiosity take you? And having been at a, a real estate firm, I mean, it was a single LP real estate family office at the time. I felt like we had an advantage, you know, going after prop tech deals. So, you know, going out, looking at those companies like Latch and Morty and, and Loft Smart, you know, had the opportunity to meet with them. At the same time, uh, I think there's a, there, was, there was a lot of scar tissue in terms of direct-to-consumer businesses. So you'll, you'll notice uh, my track record has some spotted misses on the DDC side of things. But with that said, I then started to look at a lot of marketplace businesses. You know, they were super complex. I love digging into them, supply-side dynamics, demand-side dynamics. So I started to look a lot at that. And then fintech was just really, really interesting to me. So I started to look around that as well. With the marketplace side of things, I know I saw that before when I was doing my little research on this. And I think I find them fascinating as well because they are so complex. What are some things you were looking for at the time, at least? Or what have you learned from that the last number of years? What to look for in terms of marketplace businesses? What are some of the key maybe metrics that help to figure out, okay, this could be great in terms of potential? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, for sure. So oftentimes, I mean, it's definitely a case by case basis, but you know, what you want to look for is promiscuity. So between like the supply side and the demand side. So, you know, you look at the best marketplaces that exist out there, you know, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, you know, you're not ordering from the same person or the same place as the demand side every single time. And on the supply side, you know, you're not providing that service to the same person every single time. 
And by doing that, you know, you're avoiding what we call leakage in the industry, which is when you take, you know, the transaction off of the platform. And so that's, you know, one of the biggest issues at the end of the day. So when you're looking for, you know, the best marketplace businesses, one, one actually good blog post to check out, Bill Gurley has a good scorecard up there. And the guys over at NFX, you know, are, are super, super talented marketplace investors. They've written a lot of good stuff. But the other thing I start to look for, especially, you know, when you're looking at consumer businesses as a whole, repeat rate and the velocity of that repeat is so important. So, you know, you're studying how often are people buying from that marketplace, how quickly are they buying from that marketplace, and then, you know, what percentage of the customers are. Because even if it's not a subscription business, you know, SaaS multiples are beautiful things (laughs) these days, um, you do want it to look like a subscription business. So now then, so from that experience today, and you mentioned some of the things you're kind of focused on looking at today, what are you, what are you most excited about in terms of different areas, different types of companies, anything around that, like you're like this industry or this market or these types of companies, we definitely want to invest in, or we're looking in in these areas. I'd be curious to know more today, what you're looking at. One thing that really like underlies almost all the investments I make these days is all about democratizing access. You know, I, I I didn't join the venture world to make a bunch of money. You know, it's it's one of those things that I think is really important to make a positive impact on the world that we live in. So democratizing access to the tools and the services that have historically been available to the wealthy or the large corporations is something that I think is really powerful, the personal mission of mine. So a, a few things, one on the digital health side of things. How can we find tools that improve outcomes, you know, increase access? I think like those two things and dramatically reducing cost and and helping provide the high quality care that we get in the cities, you know, to people in what I'll call care deserts where they don't have the specialists. I think that's one thing that's super, super important for the next, you know, has been for the last couple of years, but it really will be more important over the next five to 10 years as our population starts to age. You know, the second one is really in the financial services. I mean, I think we're both seeing this crazy fintech boom. It's been pretty fascinating to watch. Um, There's a lot of companies that are loading up even more debt on Americans, which is slightly uh, intimidating in a lot of ways. Um, With that said, I think, you know, how can we increase access to the tools that the wealthy have? I mean, you know, we backed a company called Lilly that uh, is improving access for freelancers to the tools that big businesses have had in regards to accounting and you know lending and all of the software for, for taxes. So I think that's another thing that we're going to continue to focus on from you know every generation. Yeah, there are more and more companies you're seeing that are that are attacking these problems, that are attacking these different angles from I've interviewed a number of them and have Ethan Block from Digit coming up. So a fintech company. Um, it's interesting to see how people are taking a different approach to it. Uh, and it's just, it, it's something that's so obvious of like, why is this not a thing yet? We're in terms of everyone having kind of an equal playing field of sorts. Um, and so companies and you know, VCs obviously investing in those areas, love that because it's helping obviously feel the companies grow, but also other founders seeing how there are opportunities and there are ways we can get involved and in, whether it be FinTech, whether it be health, as you mentioned, I think I've interviewed like, it seems like dozens of, of health companies that are finding a different way to to go about it, um, whether it be a company, I think it was it was Wealth. There's a, a couple of different ones that are out there that I have done some kind of unique angles for uh, kind of democratizing access in terms of health, uh, especially digital health, which we'll see how that evolves uh, over time as well. And for you, I know you've also 
led, I think, a diligence and kind of the other aspects of venture. Like, kind of, what does that process look like for you in terms of the diligence process after you kind of get that first look at a company? Take me through for you what that looks like. I know every venture firm is a little bit different. Totally. So the first thing I'm analyzing before anything else is the person, you know, yeah. who is the founder. And, you know, when we're digging into that person, I, I like to say, you know, my mom's a therapist, my dad's an entrepreneur. You know, I, I try to dive into the psychology of that person and a little bit more of the story behind them. So how resilient are they? How resourceful are they? And then what's their sense of urgency and their speed of learning? Like those things are absolutely critical, you know, pillars to, to a successful founder in my book. And then the last boxes that we're really looking to check are regarding, you know, can they sell? Can they sell stock? Can they sell their product? And can they sell people? And if they can do those three things, we think they're in a really, really good position to succeed. Um, the next thing is we're going we're gonna to do diligence on the market. So the product can oftentimes change. The market changes far less. So even when you're pivoting a product, you're usually staying in the same market. So how big is that market? And really, what are the got to believes regarding that market uh, in order for this company to be worth, you know, over a billion dollars? I mean, we have a $150 million fund now. We need to have some pretty large returns in there. So even if the market isn't, you know, $10 billion, $20 billion today, do we think that there is the potential for it to 2x, 3x? What are the macro tailwinds there? And then is this a 10x product in that market that can ultimately build moats, you know, barriers to entry for other companies to get in? Um, The last thing I'll just mention is on the product side, we're going to play with it. We're going to go out. We're going to talk to customers. So there's all sorts of things, you know, from a diligence perspective. We're also going to talk to people that that founders worked with to just reinsure and give us the confidence that they're going to be able to go out there and figure things out. Just to double click on the people side, because that is the first thing you're looking at. That's, I mean, it's, everyone's evaluating people, especially early stages and looking at seed and everything with that. What are you doing? You mentioned kind of the speed of learning. You mentioned um, their ability to sell. How do you analyze that? How do you, what kind of questions do you ask to think about that? Or how do you figure out that side of it? Because, and they're important for sure, but I'm curious, I would love to dive deeper into how you kind of go about that. So there's a few different questions, I think, within that in regards to like sense of urgency, for instance. Yeah. How quickly are they responding to your emails? <laughs> like at what at what time of night are they responding to your emails or at what time in the morning are they responding to yeah. your emails? I mean, when somebody's in a fundraising process, you know, making that a real, real priority and showing the ability to prioritize is something that's absolutely critical because there's going to be so many things that pop up throughout the course of the company that you're going to have to say no to that during a fundraising process, I think it needs to be a top priority for you. In terms of speed of learning, you know, and resourcefulness, oftentimes I'm going to ask the founder about to walk me through the process. How did you get to this point where you sit in front of me today with this company? What did you do with customer development? Okay. How did you learn about the industry? What people did you talk to? How did you get in touch with those people? You know, as they start to like walk you through those very nitty gritty tactical details, it starts to come to light, you know, how resourceful they actually are. And then if you ask them about the learnings between 12 months ago, when they first came up with the idea, and now there should be a real wealth of learnings and the self-awareness to be able to explain to you, you know, what it was that they had from a takeaways perspective. 
And then for you as well. So with that process, obviously it's, there's two sides to it. So there's you looking at and evaluating these founders and then the founders evaluating you. Why do you think it is that founders end up wanting to work with you and primary, like because every venture firm, especially the, the best deals, like they're all trying to get access to the best deals. How do you think uh, that goes or why companies end up working with you? I don't know, man. Pure luck. You know? <laughs> Jason seems nice. Yeah. I'll work with him. <laughs> Yeah, I think you know we're we're super lucky at Primary. Um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm blessed to be able to work with an incredible team here, and and Brad and Ben, who co-founded the firm back in 2015, ever since day one, have really put forth a priority to invest in portfolio impact. So I'm not talking about platform. Like platform teams are a completely other thing. I mean, and there's a lot of good platform teams out there. It's a dirty word here internally at Primary. You know, we have uh, we have incredibly successful, uh, incredibly smart and hardworking portfolio impact operating partners, folks like Cassie Young, who is the chief revenue officer over at Sail Through, you know, led a nine figure ARR business on the revenue side of things. We have Rebecca Price, who's been a chief people officer in multiple places now and really impressive can go in day to day. You know, we have recruiters, market development people, we have CFOs that go in and help you out with things, really getting from seed to A. And, you know, because of the fact that we've been pretty lucky in the past to partner with incredibly talented founders, um, we've now got a track record on, a, on the fundraising side and a very tight playbook in order to go out and raise funds. And, you know, being able to, to use the portfolio impact team to get everything tight and really help you in the hardest days of the earliest stages when you have the least amount of resources and then being able to partner with, you know, hopefully people that you really enjoy working with and whether it's myself or Ben or Brian or Sam or Leah or Brad, like it's, it's, it's one of those things where the human connection at the end of the day certainly goes a very long way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And for you then with, with sourcing deals, I know we kind of talked a little bit early, early days, especially has it evolved today? Like what does it look like today for, for you in terms of sourcing deals, in terms of finding finding those gems when everyone's after them? I'm curious if it's changed or what that looks like maybe today for you. It is night and day <laughs> six years ago. Oh, uh, man. Um, you look at the market back then. It's like five, six years ago. Yep. There was a bunch of sheep in venture capital. We all followed each other. We wrote like hundred okay. K, 250 K checks. Like maybe you had a lead that was putting in 500 K or a million bucks, but the amount of yeah. firms that led with the check that was that size was like, I could fit on one or two hands. Yeah. So, you know, you're getting deal flow from your friends that were other investors and maybe you got deal flow from other founders and that certainly helped. But like, I'd say 30 to 50% of the deals we were doing came through that channel. Now it's like maybe 10%. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so Quite the change. You got to get on your horse and you got to grind. And like, you know, what we do at the end of the day, there's a few things, some of which are proprietary. I mean, we built some technology to, to help us go out and find the best deals. We yeah. certainly do content marketing, you know, the, the whole like Twitter game and blog post thing. Like that's certainly one thing. But we actually, we've built different micro sites like the New York City Founders Guide, which I, I definitely recommend people check out to go find the, the top funders in New York City. Um, we have our Future Founders Program that just got launched by Brian and Tobias that's helping founders equity free, uh, really to help in the early days, very Y Combinator like. I think that's going to be another one for us. And then uh, the last thing is we, we just try to bring a prepared mind to different markets. So whether that be 
coming up with a thesis about a certain market and a macro tailwind, and then finding the best operators, the best angel investors and surrounding ourselves with those people, it enables us to become far more targeted at the tip of the spear and go out and, and kind of get connected to the folks that are working on things that we know we'll find interesting. Yeah. And for me, I'm definitely very interested in hearing more about this. I want to double click on this because I'm leading the way on you know the content and kind of the community side of what we're doing at Vitalize. For you guys then thinking about, you know, whether it be creating a different site, whether it be looking at how we look our Twitter strategy, what are, what are those discussions like for you internally around how you're using content or marketing or other things like that to help the firm? Like, what does that look like for, for you guys? And you, you touch on some of those areas, but love to dive deeper into how you kind of think through that because there's only so much time in a day and there's like, you guys are busy looking at companies. I would love to hear more about how you kind of think about that for you guys. Yeah. So we're actually on like day three, I think, or day two right now of a new marketing hire uh, that we brought over from Kickstarter and Catherine. And, and she, you know, blew us away during the interview process and how she thinks about things. But historically, the way we've gone about it is like a startup. We're not afraid to like launch something that's not perfect and to test it and to shut it down if it's not working. Yeah. We've done that multiple times. And, you know, we're in an industry right now that unfortunately can be too transactional at times and too buttoned up where people are like, don't want to express their failures and things need to look super pretty, you know, from day one. Internally, we're like, all right, we're all pretty entrepreneurial, like, go figure things out. <laughs> and, you know, for us, what that the way that that looks from a content perspective, is trying to think about our customer. Who's our customer? And really, we actually have like a couple different segments of customers internally. We do have founders. So we try to think about what type of content will add value to the early stage founders that are thinking about starting a company from day one. But because of our large portfolio impact team, we also have operators, you know, the chief revenue officers, the young salespeople, the growth marketers, the engineers, you know, how can we add value to them? And then how can we repurpose the content from the events that we're doing uh, to then try to share it out into the world and create a bit more of a flywheel that will enable more access to better quality people to create even higher quality content. Yeah, it's an important thing you mentioned there. The, the purpose of the content in the first place, think about who it's actually reaching and who you're trying to target. Like for us, in terms of what we're doing, it's like looking at, obviously the founders are going to be one, one side of that, but you're also looking at we've had an angel group historically with Irish angels since 2012. And then you're looking at angel investors as well. And then what we're trying to do, and you mentioned kind of democratizing access, like we want to increase access to more and more for more people to uh, essentially invest in startups. And so obviously crowdfunding is doing some interesting things, new regulations is opening things up. It's got people thinking, you can see like backstage capital raised through Republic. You look at Sahil uh, from Gum, uh, Gumroad raised through Republic as well. Different things are kind of happening there on those things. So it's like, you're also looking at like making content for other like aspiring investors, because if there's more money there, then they can actually feel other people who normally historically aren't getting investment. So like we're trying to think through that as well. So I love asking people about how they're going through that process of thinking about the content side of it as well. Cause it, it is tough because there's, you're busy with other things, but obviously you can hire out for that uh, to kind of make up for what you can't do or don't have time to do, but it's still important for the firm. Um, and, and with, with what you've done in the last like six years or so here, you've been in New York city this, this whole time. How have you seen the whole idea of location not mattering as much or, you know, with everything going digital with everything with COVID the last year, how has that changed how you find deals, how you access deals, everything with that? So 
I think the, the how we find deals piece has actually probably improved in a bit of a way because there was a lot of wasting time going to coffee meetings and <laughs> drinks events and and, and uh, doing all sorts of activities that probably did not add value and as an extrovert that uh, has run probably 150 miles an hour since getting a job in VC, it enabled me to look in the mirror and ask myself like, what's really important and where am I actually getting value out of these events? And for the most part, um, we actually looked at our deal flow data the other day and we're up like 40% year over year. (laughs) So I, I don't think that we're having any trouble there, but I did mention, you know, we are New York City focused. We're essentially New York City only, although we will back, you know, remote teams. But I think New York's coming back, man. Like I know New York's coming back. Like mm-hmm. the energy here, it's crazy right now. And I'm sitting in my office right now. I can't wait for the 16 other people that I work with to come back. I can't wait, you know, to go to visit the portfolio companies here in the city and and feel the energy in the room. And, you know, certainly remote work has its benefits. And I think remote work will be more, you know, common these days than it was previously because we've broken that cultural mold, but nothing will ever be working in person. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's difficult to imagine not having that at some capacity. And for you guys, I mean, how do you think it'll change, I guess, with now these meetings can be done virtually, they can be done on Zoom, but that's a that's a more efficient process, but you're, you know, it's not the same as meeting in person. What do you think that mix will be as we kind of move forward? I'm just curious on your perspective. Do you mean on the pitch side of things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. Um, I I think that at the end of the day, we'll try to meet with as many founders in person as possible. And this is at least my personal like, yeah. opinion and, and how I'd like to approach it. I have trouble in the Zoom world. You know, I'm fully in my own head when I'm in the Zoom world because not seeing you in person and not feeling your energy as like a human being it doesn't give me the same like fulfillment and the same energy as like when we're actually like meeting face to face and sitting on a couch and talking about your idea. So yeah. I completely understand and, and respect the way that a number of investors are going to go about it. I'm doing mainly Zoom meetings and that's great. I just don't think that anything's going to beat the connection one and two, it's just not going to do it for me. Yeah. And if that that doesn't do it for you, then it's like you can find your own way to do it. And it's one of those things too. I talked to someone else about this, where like you can't smell anything, you don't hear any other noises out there, you don't know how tall the person is. Like there's so many different details. Like I have no idea. I've interviewed since the pandemic probably over 150 people, and I I have no idea like how tall they're, how like what they look, anything aside from like most of them are just audio interviews too. So like I have no idea. Which it's great that you can get the access to people all over the world that wouldn't like be able to meet up with in person anyways for some of those. But for others, it's like, yeah, it would have been amazing to have that experience of you remember what the room was like. You remember, you know, your first impression of them, all these different things that you don't, you don't get in the virtual world. 
So it's gonna we're gonna see what the mix is gonna be. I'm excited to get back to in person. Even people in Los Angeles I've interviewed who like we're in the same city, so we should definitely hang out in person at some point. It just is weird that we haven't yet, um, but we will soon. Hopefully, with the pandemic coming to a close, knock on wood. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> I mean, that LA traffic. I don't know if you want to be dealing with that. Hang out with people though. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the west side, so I, I hopefully can avoid avoid as much as possible and make people come to the west side because it's nice. But we'll see how it goes as as time progresses. But um, it'll be interesting to see the the evolution as well. And and one thing I'm always curious about with with anyone, whether it be you know a startup founder, whether it be an investor, how do you kind of invest in your own your own learning, your own you know lessons, trying to become a better VC, but then also on top of that, just becoming a better person overall. Like, how do you invest in that? I'm curious. Every Friday, I have a, a two-hour chunk of time that I call my weekly review time. And so the week prior, I, I have like a, a calendar block of like what my optimal schedule looks like. You know, how many pitch meetings do I want to take? How much time do I want to, you know, read and put together research for an investment thesis? Uh, and then part of that monthly routine is I want to be reaching out to people that I can learn a lot from on the investor side of things and on the personal side of things. And I have goals that are you know, related to that in terms of the amount of conversations. So if I haven't hit or let's say I'm lagging behind a goal for like, OK, I want to talk to two of the top investors in the world and I have like a list of folks that I'm trying to track down or get in touch with, I'm going to use that two hour block to get in touch with those people and to catch back up to the things that I'm missing and not prioritizing. So that block of time is really personal to me. And then, you know, I try to listen to good podcasts like yours and a number of other folks in order to learn because um, I don't really watch a lot of TV these days. So I think podcasts when I'm walking around and trying to clear my head is just this incredible democratization of access, you know, going back to that again, uh, to information that, man, I wish I had back when you and I were in college, you know, nine and 13. <laughs> what does that calendar then look like in terms of some of the other things? I would love to know, you know, more in the details. I talked to, I always love asking people this. I talked to like Marlon Nichols from, uh, from Mac Venture Capital, went through his schedule, went through some other people's in terms of their, their blocks, because I find that it's helpful to, it's definitely helpful to block things off. Otherwise it's not real. If it's not, if it's in your calendar, it's not real. How do you go about that in terms of how you structure kind of your, your calendar and your week? I have a codified system, by the way, that like I share with uh, love it. with my with my EA to help help like color block everything. But Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, I have two hour blocks in the morning for like deep reading, deep learning, deep research, and that has to mainly do with thesis development and what we just discussed, which is getting cut back up on my goals. Yeah. The other stuff that I tend to focus on, so pitch meetings is certainly one of them, work time, portfolio support, portfolio impact is like a really, really important thing, not only for, you know, our firm, but me personally, and a big reason why, you know, I'm, I'm at primary and why I do venture. We only do you know, three to four deals per an investor per year. So yeah. um, that type of you know concentration makes it so you're going to want to work with the companies. Um, personal development time, certainly put aside. I do spend about an hour and a half every week on, on calls with other VCs. I try to limit that just because I think it's great for learning. But unless it's like a focused call, 
that's less less us to do deal flow, but more like, okay, I'm looking at this space and you're looking at this space. I try to think about that. And then future founder networking. So I want to invest time in like the next generation of founders. And I try to spend a few hours every week meeting with folks that are still working at companies, but have been identified by folks that have worked with them in the past as potential great founders in the future. And I want to help them think through, you know, their career path and what they might want to do in the future. Yeah, it's like play, playing that long game. You have to seeding the future investments before they even become companies. <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you, like, talk about the long game. I uh, I met this founder, Tony Aloko, back when he was 17 years old. So, like, this was uh, eight years ago, nine years ago. I'm 30 now. So, yeah, this was this yeah. was eight, nine years ago now, right when I moved back to Boston. And eight, nine years later, got a chance to back him. And man, is his company cranking yeah. now. And, and uh, there's nothing more fun than, than getting to bet on people that you know, you've seen grow up because that evolution is just incredible. And to be a part of that ride and that journey, you know, I'm grateful that Tony and Daniel gave us the opportunity to be along for that. And it's been awesome to watch. Yeah, and bu- building those relationships for that long of time period. I look at so many of the people I've talked to on the show or have met in the last number of years, it's like, yeah, you're playing the long game and just like understanding that you never know when someone could start something later or like they might eventually bring someone else in. I know talking to Yuri Engstrom from YesVC and they have a pretty small fund. I think it's maybe five or $10 million, but they're like seeding ideas into people. They're like, hey, I th- you should probably start this I- this company. I have this idea for you. And they're like helping them start the company and then they'll invest in them. So it's like, that's like, I mean, at the earliest of stages, that's what people are doing. We, we do the exact same thing. We, you know, we help give ideas to folks who we think are incredible operators who yeah. might not have an idea, but they say they want to start a company just because we really believe in them. And uh, I'll, I'll give you one, one quick funny story that just happened right before this, which was uh, somebody I was interviewing for, for an MBA associate position asked me a question at the end. And she goes, you know, what's one thing you would change about, you know, venture capital today? And I said, I'd get rid of all of the transactional people in the industry. And, you know, when I look at early stage venture and we're talking about future founders who might not start a company for two, six, 10 years, you know, it's transactional people that aren't going to take those meetings or they're not going to treat those people really well in those meetings. So I think, you know, you really need to pay attention to every interaction you have and really bring your genuine, like curious self into those meetings and figure out how you can add value. Cause there's just too many people that are just not good actors in, that, <laughs> in this world. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, but I think that- the ones who are the good actors who are, again are playing kind of more of a long game, I think will win in the end uh, because yeah, there are so many people that will start companies. There are people like you think why, how someone got access to a deal from, you know, this person they may have known for a decade or something like that happens all the time where it's like, how'd you get access? It's like, well, I've known them and kind of put the time in for a long time. I've helped them, you know, it's like giving without expecting anything in return. And eventually good things happen from that. I think over time, if more people do that, it's, it's a better way of going about it um, overall. <laughs> my, my, my mom used to tell me good guys don't finish last. So I'm, I'm going to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, mom, for the wise words. <laughs> I, I want to I ask about your, your decision-making process because any, any VC especially 
you're making decisions constantly. Um, and whether it be, you know, saying yes or no to a quick deal you see. I know from talking to, I think it was Rick Smith at Crosscut mentioned, like, yeah, we see, you know, we get like 5,000 or so requests. We were looking at maybe 500 and then we'll maybe invest in like 15 to 20. So there's obviously a lot of decisions that go into that type of process of saying no and everything with that. Give me like a high level. I would love to hear like how you look at making decisions, what goes into that process for you with the company. So in order to have us take a meeting with a company, it needs to really match the criteria that we're most interested in on the consumer side of things. Uh, one, we're trying to understand, like, does this company jump on a major macro tailwind? You know, is it the digitization of healthcare? Is it Gen Z and their shifting, you know, consumption behavior regarding how they like to look at, you know, user interfaces, what are the colors of the brands, so on and so forth. So like, does it match a macro tailwind? Two, we ask ourselves, is this a 10x better product? You know, does the original product they're bringing to the table, is it going to be much, much better than that that exists today? Because that's an important thing. And then the last thing is, you know, is this founder well suited to, you know, create this company? Do they have a unique insight? Do they have experience? So on and so forth. And that's a big thing that we're really evaluating. And then as we get into the weeds with the company, starting to understand the moats uh, that they can ultimately build is really important to us. And we went through some of the ways we evaluate founders, but I don't mean to overcomplicate things, but if you end up looking at like those three things that I just mentioned and they check all the boxes and then you isolate what are the gotta believes for an investment and you personally believe in those gotta believes, pull the trigger, you know, do everything you can to win that freaking deal. For you then, what is it? I mean, there's a lot of saying no in venture. How have you gotten better or what does that look like for you in terms of saying no, whether it be saying no to a meeting, you're saying no to a a founder who obviously wants to get your investment. Like, how has that gone? Because that's one of the crappier sides of venture. You saying no. How have you gone about that? Oh, I'm working on this with uh, with a coach of mine, so <laughs> I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I, uh, it's both uh, personal and professional. Honestly, I mean, I'm I'm like a middle child that loves to try to make everybody happy. So saying no is not easy. Um, yeah. When it comes to saying no to deals, I think it's a bit easier than than other things for me. You know, it's it's strictly business, and it's like, look, I really like X, Y, and Z about the company. With that said, you know, there are a number of questions I have about the God of Believes. Yep. And usually, I'll, you know, none of it's fact, by the way. Like, I don't know for a fact that yeah. that one thing is not going to work. Like, I think it's BS when, you know, venture capitalists are like, well, I've seen this happen five times before and that didn't fucking work then. So it's not going <laughs> right. to work now. Yep. Like, nah, dude, like the why now? Things could always change. And then I, I love when seeing when people are wrong, including myself. So I let people know, you know, these are the things I have questions about and I can only do, you know, a few deals a year. So unfortunately, it's not hitting that bar. And sometimes, by the way, that includes, am I just excited about this market? Because, you know, the average relationship it, you know, between an investor and a founder should last longer than the average marriage right now in the United States. Yeah, it's wild. So <laughs> you better be sure that we're both excited going into this partnership because this gonna, we're going to be around for a while if things work. Um, as far as like the, the other like meetings and reach out now, 
you know, it goes back to the calendar and that's why I'm doing my Friday sessions and then looking ahead at the next week, because if it doesn't match things that, you know, I've already outlined my optimal calendar yep. and I know what energizes me. So I just got to say no. Yeah. And I, I say like, you know, unfortunately it's not a priority for me right now, or unfortunately I'm really tied up in the following things, but you know, would love to reconnect down the line or if I can be helpful, let me know. Or if I can leverage the team, I mean, you know, Leah is incredible. Uh, you know, she works with me mainly on the consumer side of things. Like she's been able to take certain things off my plate and, and really make me feel a lot more comfortable and going out and, and prioritizing other things. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things too, I think to your point of what you're looking for at primary, it makes it easier to say no on the investment side where it's like, Hey, we have these criteria, these things like it's obviously business, um, on the meetings as well. It's like, you know, you have your calendar, your priorities. Like, Cause I get a lot of inbound requests now for the podcast, people wanting to come on the show, other things that like happen with that. And like, eventually it's like, you go from like, Oh my God, someone wants to come on the show to like, Oh, this doesn't like fit what I want to have for the show. And I'm also out doing outreach to your point, like to people I want to have on the show. And so like you mentioned, you know, re reaching out to other VCs you want to talk to. It's like, I have this whole list of people I want to talk to plus inbound to look at. And then like, you're saying no to a lot of those people that like might be okay, but not also like what you're reaching for right now. And so it has been evolution of like learning how to say no and like i'm the same way of like wanting to say yes to everything wanting to like make everyone happy in some ways but it's like you can't so you have to find a way to like prioritize and once you make it clear like hey i'm looking for xyz right now these are my priorities sorry i have to pass because you're not fitting these priorities best of luck but it's so hard to do <laughs> like mentally it's so hard to get through that to be able to do that i don't know it's, it's a challenge you hit the nail on the head though it write down the criteria of the people that you want on. And yeah. I'd put a sticky note up right next to your computer. And it's like that subtle reminder every day as your accountability partner. I mean, that's the one thing I think I've missed when being nomadic, living out of a suitcase for the last eight months is yeah. my sticky notes keep getting lost. <laughs> so Damn it. I need, uh, I need a space to say, no, Jason. Yeah. Don't take that meeting or, you know, whatnot. Yeah. And you said now you have, so you have an assistant helping you. You have, I think you said you had a coach as well. Like how has that helped you along the way, especially the coach side of things? Yeah. Um, the coach, therapist, assistant, you know, all three of them, I think yeah. play a really, really important role for me. You know, I am, as I mentioned, I think a lot of folks in venture, like, especially at seed, because the sourcing is not the same in terms of being able to just do outbound. It's a bit more sporadic. And, you know, my mind is jumping in eight different, you know, places in a given day. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, you got to find time to, to sit back and reflect. Uh, I say, unfortunately, it's really fortunately, uh, you know, I, I got to take some time to do that. So, you know, between like meditating and journaling in the morning and then, you know, the coach really helping me uh, figure out like what energizes me, as I mentioned, but then what drains me. And when you write down that list of what drains you, it actually becomes much clearer as to how to address those things. Yeah. Because some of those things you can completely cut out of your life by saying no. Other of those things you can't completely cut out, but maybe you can go out and say, okay, this one thing, like meeting with these types of people, I want somebody else on my team to do, and you can start delegating. And that alone, you know, has become a lot more freeing, you know, to me. Uh, so I think that's a big thing. And then just identifying like what it is that you value and the coach to give you 
not only the, the headspace and the reflection time to like write those things down, but then to work with you on the tactics to execute that plan and then to keep you accountable on that plan, I think are, are the, the things that have been the most important to me day to day with them. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the, the Tim Ferriss not to do list, having a not to do list every day or every week or every month, whatever it is, like the things you're not going to do, because it's so often like, if you can just cut out those things, then you make so much more space for what matters and what again, what gives you energy. And I think I posted on Twitter relatively recently around like, really optimizing not necessarily for time and time, time, yes, but like energy, it's like what things are going to give you the most energy, what things drain you, I think that once you get to that thinking, it changes how you kind of operate day to day and like what task you do because you realize if you do certain things like i can go all day like yesterday was one of those really good days where i had podcast interviews and meetings with certain people that gave me energy and like felt like i could go all day whereas other times you kind of don't have that those same feelings and you feel like why am i drained today like what did i do today if you look back on it you'd probably find that like oh this is why i'm doing things that i didn't care about as much they weren't you know energizing for me and it drained me by the end so like yeah trying to adjust those are, are something that's challenging but it's definitely important and one of the things i want to just Take a little deeper on you mentioned the meditation journaling type of thing what does it look like for you what what are some of the things you're doing there so i wake up usually at 6 a.m and the first thing i'll do is i'll meditate so i use the waking up app uh, by sam harris yep. i used headspace for five years and i think i hit a meditation wall <laughs> and i was like all right i kind of want to switch it up and you know, Sam Harris's way of meditation is certainly different from the way Calm and, and Headspace go about it. And uh, it's been great. It's been super powerful to me, you know, 10 minutes, sometimes with your eyes open and looking in the world and just realizing, you know, the difference between the thinker and the observer and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in terms of, you know, journaling, journaling is an activity that originally I started at the beginning of the pandemic. It started out with using the the daily stoic like uh, journal which yep. uh, was good but it was like i don't know six eight lines mm -hmm. it didn't feel like enough to me and so I, I bought a new journal and i'll just start in the morning with like whatever's on my mind and yeah. you know it could be personal it could be professional it could be reflections on meetings the day before it could be you know how i'm feeling about something a goal uh, I mean, I just got back to New York as you and I were talking <laughs> yep. about, I wrote down my list this morning of like the things I'm most excited to do now that I'm back in the city. And, you know, I don't have a billion things coming into my mind at six ten in the morning. So it's much easier to dig into the parts of your mind that have to do with those other pieces. And so it's a, it's a very like important and therapeutic time for me that I try to prioritize now. This is a subtlety I'm going to ask about, but I'm going to ask anyways. Uh, paper, journaling, writing physically versus digital. Thoughts on that? Talk to me, Jason. Paper. Paper. Uh, <laughs> I love I love Jor and Maxime at Jor, by the way, yeah. is one of the smartest founders I've ever met from product perspective. Yeah. With that said, an app just doesn't do it for me. Yeah. I, I'm like, get it. And by the way, my handwriting is horrible. <laughs> so, you know, I'm grabbing a pen, I'm writing it down. And I, yeah. I feel like there's going to be a good story where like 10 years from now, probably more than like 30, I'm going to look back at these journals and be like, what the heck was I writing? Like, I, I wish I could see, but like, I can't even read it. <laughs>
Well, it's definitely therapeutic and for for you only uh, in the in in the moment, which is what it's for. Like like I I've had a journal I've journaled for years and like I've had the um, five minute journal I've used for a little bit, but then I shifted to I have this one line a day journal I use every night. It's just it's literally just like a couple lines, like you mentioned, not nothing too much. But I have a daily reflection of that. But then I also use a combination of like a moleskin journal for longer thoughts when I'm writing. But then I also recently have fallen in love with Notion. So I've played, I've dabbled with Notion for journaling. I don't like it as much as a physical journal writing, but I do find that like, it's nice to have quick notes in Notion and then organize it. And like, I don't know, it's a mix of things, but I think journaling in general, the takeaway is super helpful for anyone to like get all of the junk that's in your head, organize or out on paper. So you can like actually operate and function in your day, which is important <laughs> with that as well. Then as we're coming to a, a close here, uh, any parting thoughts for for founders? I know you have been a founder. You've then also been the VC side of things for the last number of years. Anything else for founders growing their businesses, thinking about starting businesses, anything else you want to leave them with as we uh, wrap things up here? When it comes to starting a company, make sure your heart is really, really in it for the right reasons. Ask yourself why, because... Eight years ago, 10 years ago, when I first started out in tech, it wasn't that cool to start a company. And now the amount of entrepreneurship that's going on is great in a lot of ways, but failing fast should not be about shutting down a company really quickly. It should be, you know, all companies are going to have times where you need to jump over you know, certain hurdles and run through certain walls. And that doesn't, not just for starting a company, by the way, that's life in general. And where you take that strength from, that's the place I think that uh, will tell you whether or not you're doing something for the right reasons. Appreciate that. And where can people go to learn more about what you're doing? Connect with you as well, Jason. What's the best places? You can follow me on Twitter at Jason R. Schumann. That's S-H-U-M-A-N. And follow us at Primary VC on Twitter as well. Perfect. I'll be sure to link that up in the show notes. Just go grind.com slash podcast. Jason, thanks for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. Have a good one. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, find just go grind on instagram and twitter at just go grind you can find me on twitter at justin gordon 212 find me on instagram justin gordon 8 thank you so much for listening have a great day